The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. One thing about this world you can't depend on anything. The leaders that we follow, they can't even write their name. But here we are in America. Ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on? Going hungry, teens are turned to crime. And politicians know it's true, but they ain't got no time. Now here we are in America, nothing seems to change, it just goes on and on and on. But there may be people who truly do care, they may be mighty, but still they lack the key.
The Tom Sumner Program.com. Old Fashioned Radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. From the Tom Sumner Show. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My uh, guest this hour is uh, a historian and author uh, with a new book called Rebels at Sea, uh, about privateering in the American Revolution. His name is Eric J. Dolan. He joins me by phone. Good morning, Eric. Welcome to the show. morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, Let's see. Um... You you've written what fifteen some books? How did you get yeah. <laughs> interested in and and I'm just reading from some notes. So if if my numbers <laughs> are off, feel free to cor- correct me. But um, okay. I, I was just I, I was trying to remember from one page something that I that I read while reading another page. But um, <laughs> among those books uh, are. Uh, Best-selling maritime histories, Leviathan and Black Flags and Blue Waters. Um, mm-hmm. What? First of all, how did you get interested <laughs> enough in history to make it a career? Well, it's a long uh, story, so I'll make it very short. <laughs> I actually went to school when I when I was a kid. I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau when I grew up. I was really into biology. I collected seashells. I just loved uh, nature. And actually, I went, to, I went to college, and I was a biology major at first, and then I switched over to environmental studies, and I got interested in environmental policy and public policy, and I actually went on to get a master's and a Ph.D. in uh, environmental and public policy. I worked in a number of, for, uh, I worked for the government, I worked for nonprofit groups, all doing environmental work related to hazardous waste, acid rain, uh, you know, uh, uh, climate change, all sorts of things. And <clears throat> I always loved writing, and I always was writing on the side. Even when I was in, in high school, I used to write op-eds. I had a couple of op-eds actually published in the New York Times, sort of <laughs> humorous pieces when I was young. So I always loved writing. I didn't take any writing classes uh, beyond high school. But when I got out of uh, my, sort of during my PhD program, a little bit before, I started writing these small books. I get co- contracts to write books about uh, different topics. I wrote a book about the duck stamp program. I wrote a book about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I wrote a book, uh, helped contribute to a book about international environmental treaty making. And I just always loved writing. And I realized that the thing that I loved most about all the jobs I had was when I had an opportunity to write something. And in uh, about 19, 
1996, 97, my wife and I and family were living down in D.C., actually Maryland. And I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I'd like to be a, a writer, a full-time writer. And fortunately for me, she's very supportive. And she said, okay, that's, uh, that's fine. But before you can quit your job and become a writer, you've got to put aside a whole year's worth of your salary. So <laughs> I spent about five or six years doing that. And then uh, one day... Uh, it was actually a little more than that. One day in uh, the summer of 2007, my uh, wife said to me uh, while watching TV, uh, you can quit your job. I said, what? You can quit your job. And she said, you, you've reached the magic number. She'd been putting money aside that I'd been giving her all those years. And so I've been a full-time writer since 2007. And my love of history just came, I can't really tell you exactly where it came from. As I said, I started off loving biology but I always loved writing, reading about the history of biology. Something about American history just grabbed hold of me, and I grew up near the ocean. I loved maritime stories, and uh, that's the direction that my writing started to take. Leviathan, The History of Whaling in America, was the book that I wrote, came out in 2007, and it was because of the success of that book and also uh, having saved a year's worth of my salary that my <laughs> wife and I really decided that I could take this leap because as your listeners and as you no doubt know, uh, being a writer is not the path to riches. It's not a job you want to pursue if money is your number one goal. And I, and I couldn't have done it without my, my wife's support and my, my family's support. But it's worked out for the last uh, almost 15 years. Well, and, you know, I said that you were a historian. It sounds like you were attracted more to maritime history than um, than just history. Yeah, a maritime history is my main interest, but I did write a book called Fur, Fortune, and Empire, which is about the history of the fur trade, which is mostly mostly land-based, although there was a great chapter in there about the opening of the China trade uh, where Americans were going over to China with seal skins and otter skins uh, from the Pacific Northwest and the South Atlantic. And that's actually got, what got me interested in my next book, which was When America First Met China, about early Chinese-American relations, which was a maritime story. So I live in Marblehead, Massachusetts, which if you know Massachusetts, it's right on the coast. I don't live right on the beach. Uh, but I live about a quarter mile from the water. I see the water almost every day. I, uh, every place I've lived, I've been within a couple of miles of the ocean. So I, just something about the ocean just attracts me. I'm not a sailor. I've been on sailboats, friends' boats, but, and I'm not a fisherman, uh, but I love spending time down on the coast. I was, as I said, a really serious shell collector, and for some reason that melded into or morphed, in, morphed into me being interested in maritime history. And another thing that happens to writers, you know, when people think about writers, people write books. Wouldn't it be great and just come up with a topic and you write a book? No, 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 no. It's not <laughs> that simple. I've come up with plenty of topics that no, my agent's not interested in, no publisher is interested in, and what happens to writers is to some extent they get a little bit pigeonholed. And since I've written so many maritime histories, uh, a lot of people sort of know me as that guy who writes about maritime histories. <laughs> You're the so maritime I, history guy. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean I can't pop out of that, uh, but... My recent books all had very heavy maritime components, and, and certainly Rebels at Sea is all about fighting 
on the ocean, and there are plenty of great stories, so I don't mind it right now. Get more about privateers from the book Rebels at Sea by marine historian Eric J. Dolan, straight ahead. Out of with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. 
Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. More about privateers from the book Rebels at Sea by Marine historian Eric J. Dolan, straight ahead. <laughs> well, you you said something uh, right off the bat, Eric, that, that uh, tickled me a little bit because you weren't the first person on uh, to, to say it on my show, that when you were a kid you wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I yeah. love that stuff. Uh, a a an occasional guest on the show is uh, uh, Rick Mixter's a, a underwater filmmaker, and you know my mm-hmm. show's based in Flint, Michigan, and and he's traveled all around the Great Lakes studying shipwrecks primarily, and mm-hmm. and um, he he said that same thing when I was a kid I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. He said I in fact um, it, I think it was like right during or right after he went to college uh the calypso was coming through the straits 
<laughs> and he knew about it ahead of time. And he, he got this, this long telegraphing, uh, uh, telescoping pole and had his <laughs> resume on the end of it and handed it off to somebody on the boat as it was going by. And so I I had to snicker a little to myself because I knew you would appreciate that story. And but also it's it's I found I found another one of you. <laughs> you know, these guys that that, that wanna well, he, work yeah, underground he, he's or underwater. He's influenced he's influenced uh who knows how many millions of kids probably just to be interested. I mean, what what could be more exciting when you're a kid in your in your in your house watching TV underwater scenes that are new? And, I, and I'm old enough, so I was at that age, uh, you know, in my early teens or before my teens when I was watching this stuff. When you have wide-eyed amazement, it was that Mutual Kingdom. Uh, mutual Kingdom of o- Omaha's Mutual Kingdom. I can't remember the name of the guy. I used to watch that a lot too. The, uh, the safari type show. But I just love Jack Cousteau. Just seemed to me to have an awesome life. You know, you I think, to go yeah, all I think that was world. Mutual of Omaha's Animal uh, Mutual Kingdom. Mutual of Omaha. That's it. That's it. Mutual. <laughs> and so all, and uh, all that stuff. And and who was the guy? I, I, we all you I know. Can't, I can't remember. He, I used to watch him all the time. I can see him right now. He has, he was very distinguished looking, and he had his very muscly sidekick uh, guy. Jim. Uh, anyway, there are two of Jim. Yeah, there. Everybody two, loved Jim because <laughs> he was the one that wrestled <laughs> with the alligators. The other guy stayed in the boat <laughs> drinking uh, mai tais or something. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but but yeah, it's um, it's fascinating. And I, and I was talking with someone not too long ago. Um, uh, about underwater exploration, and they were pointing out that we actually know less still about what's under the the planet's oceans and and seas and lakes than we know about space. Oh yeah, I'm sure. It's uh, I don't I don't have the numbers to tip my tongue, but I think it's something like we've explored maybe two percent. Of the ocean, it's it's so enormous. And as anybody who knows who's looked at a globe or flown over an ocean, it's just and they're so deep and there's just so many different parts of the ocean. It's it's endlessly fascinating. So, how did your attention get hijacked by privateers? <laughs> well, so, uh, <laughs> I, I wrote a, I wrote a book about four years ago called Black Flags, Blue Waters. The yeah epic history of America's most notorious pirates. And uh, after I wrote the book, I mean, I talk about privateers a little bit in the book, but not really much. But after I wrote the book, I went out and gave a bunch of book talks. And at the end of almost every talk I gave, somebody would ask some variation of the question, you know, uh, do you write about privateers? Weren't privateers pirates? Isn't privateering legalized piracy, they would say. And people often use the term pirate and privateer interchangeably and and that just per- piqued my interest and i i wrote another book after that about hurricanes called the furious sky the history of hurricanes but then i was looking around for another topic and i remembered uh i remembered all those questions about privateering and, and i always loved the american revolutionary period just because there's so many rich characters and it's such a dramatic time in our history i said I, you know i've heard that there were private there was privateering going on during the american revolution but i didn't I didn't know much about it. 
So I started reading about it, and I just got increasingly excited that there was a really good book to be written. And in relation to that, I have to say one other thing about my, you know, some people write books, uh, you know, a whole bunch of books that are sort of on the same topic or variations on a theme. A lot of my books have been very, very different. The one thing that connects them all, other than me working on them, is that I almost always intentionally pick book topics uh, on subjects that I don't know much about. And that, that's not because I don't know anything about a lot. That, that may be part of it, but it's it's because I have to work on these books for like 18 months or sometimes longer. And you don't want to get bored and you want to be interested and, and learn new things. So I didn't know a lot about privateering, but I had read enough to know that it would make for a really good book. And fortunately, my literary agent and then my publish, the publisher, W.W. Uh, w. Norton or Livewright, which is part of Norton, um, Agreed, and that's how the book was was born, and that's sort of how a lot of my books were born. It's like brownie in motion. I, I sort of knock into things, <laughs> or I'm, 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 you know, I'm reading for something else, and all of a sudden there's a sentence that, yeah, oh, that's that's interesting. And those are the great, those are, it's great when that happens. Sometimes the struggle to find a good book topic is really, it, it's it's not as difficult as writing a book, but finding a book topic is surprisingly hard because you've got to uh, satisfy a whole bunch of different requirements. Uh, one is you've got to be interested in it. Two, it can't be a topic that's been totally written to death or there have been a lot of popular books written about it in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, you have to get your agent, if you have a literary agent, excited about it. And then the publisher has to be convinced that it's going to be a book that will find a decent enough audience to spend the money to produce it. So all of those things have to align. And, and as I said before, there's been a number of books that I've proposed that have gone nowhere because I can't get buy-in from anybody else. And by the same token, publishers make mistakes all the time. The, the number of books that have been published that the publisher had high hopes for and they tank is legion. You'd be shocked. It's like publishing is sort of like going into a casino and expecting to win at blackjack, or not the blackjack, like like a one-armed bandit. It, it, a lot of it is luck and timing, and just I, it's hard to explain. Sometimes people don't know. I, I've had so many conversations with other authors and my agent where they point to a book that either they're involved with or they know a lot about, and nobody expected it to do well. And then it published, and it just took off. And they also have examples of books that, you know, Everybody thought it's going to be a sure thing, you know, the, the, the author's famous or it's a great topic or nobody's ever written about it before. And for whatever reason, when it comes out, nobody wants to read it. I, it's a mystery. And th that's why, you know, the publication, this book, Rebels at Sea, just came out two days ago. I mean, my books tend to, fortunately for me, they tend to sell well for a long period of time because they don't go, you know, they don't become out of date in a year or two. They're not about a modern a current political event or something like that. So I'm hoping that over time, you know, people will get to know my book, but uh, it's, uh, I just, I've had so many, I've heard so many sad stories. Uh, I'll tell you one story without, I won't name the book, but I know of one story, somebody who wrote a book and it got a front page New York Times review, a glowing review. And despite that, and all these great critical reviews, the book only sold 
2,000 hardcover copies in the first six months. Nobody wanted to read it. And the author was distraught because that's a failure. So anyway, but then I also know people who wrote a book, got a very small advance, nobody thought much about it, and then all of a sudden, everybody wants to buy it. So it's a really strange, it's a strange profession. <laughs> well, and it, it gets impacted by um, what's going on in the film industry, too, because if a book gets picked yeah. up and made into a movie, that, that changes everything for the author. Yeah, you'd be surprised. You don't make some authors make a boatload out of a movie, but uh, others. It, it, it depends on the deals that are reached. I unfortunately, I, nobody's ever approached me to make a movie of any of my books, for, <laughs> and and I know every, all my friends are saying, "Oh, you need to have a movie tie-in." And my, you know, my books are more sprawl, sprawling and maybe hard to put in one movie. I've been in a couple. Of, I've had a couple of documentary type stuff done, and one of my books was optioned for a TV thing, but nothing's happened with that. But uh, my mother, my mother, who's 88, is constantly telling me, because all she wants is her son to have a super best-selling book. And she, my mother will <laughs> tell me, she also say, she say, Eric, you've got to put some sex in your book. Oh, that's funny. Because <laughs> she thinks that's going to sell it. It's not like her personality. It's just funny. She doesn't know that much about the publishing industry, and she just, you know, you'd have a movie tie-in, but nope, not yet. <laughs> well, in this in this new book, um, it it's being described as pivoting from pirates to privateers. Does that suggest that uh, privateers did in fact start out as pirates? No, no, the. It's pivoting because what I said before, sort of like mirror images, people often think reflexively of those two in the same breath. However, your question does point to something I talk about in the book a little bit, but is not the issue for the privateers during the American Revolution. And that is there are many cases in the past where uh, privateers during a war, when the war's over and their letters of mark, which is the permission to be a privateer, are yanked by the government. It is true that in many instances, former privateers become pirates. In fact, I have a big section on that in my book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, because what happened is the War of the Spanish Succession between 1702 and 1713, uh, there were thousands of privateer privateers, uh, mainly English privateers and French privateers. The war ends in 1713. So these tens of thousands of men who have been on these privateers seeking out enemy ships to capture as prizes, all of a sudden are thrown out of work. And at the same time, there was a, a sort of a worldwide depression. So what happened is a lot of these former privateers, especially uh, British ones or English ones at the time, they stayed in the Caribbean. And they said, you know, I've got some of these skills. I can, I can, be on a ship, I can attack other ships, I can take them, let's just do it for myself. And so they became pirates. And so that, that was a large part of the genesis of the golden age of piracy, or that part of the golden age of piracy that most people know about, sort of the Pirates of the Caribbean era with Blackbeard and Steve Bonnet and Sam Bellamy and all these pirates. A number of them were privateers. But in the American Revolution, totally different story. 
while in the past there had been privateers that acted like pirates, like Sir Francis Drake uh, in, in England, uh, and Charles Morgan to a certain, Henry Morgan to a certain extent. That's what gave privateering a bad name. But by the time the American Revolution came about, privateering, which has been around since the 1200s, was uh, part of international law. And as it was practiced by the colonies and then the United States, there were very clear rules and regulations. And these privateersmen went out to capture only British ships, whereas pirates capture ships of any nation. Pirates capture ships of any nation, and they take all the prize all the booty for themselves, and they're not doing it for any larger cause. Privateering is very different. Yes, you go out and capture ships, but you only capture ships of the country that you're at war with, and you have to abide by certain regulations. You can't treat your prisoners poorly. You can't sell any of your goods on your own. You have to bring it back to a vice admiralty court in the colonies or somewhere else, have the prize or the ship adjudicated to determine that it's actually a legal prize, and then you get to split the profit. So there is a profit motive, but it's very different than being a pirate. And none of the privateers during the American Revolution veered, in, veered into out-and-out piracy. So that's why it's quite different. But it's pivoting because, yes, there is this hazy connection between piracy and privateering, and a more clear connection as you go back in time. But during the American Revolution, privateering was like, our, it was like a cost-free navy. And maybe I could take a step back and just define what a privateer is a little bit better. Uh, privateers were armed vessels that were owned by, by private individuals, and they had permission from the government to attack enemy ships. That permission is, was called the letter of mark. It was actually a legal document that the ship owners and the government uh, together had to be signed and filled out and it detailed what you were allowed to do and who you were allowed to attack and what you had to do with your prizes. And so these privateers would go out, heavily, heavily armed, mostly former merchant ships, fishing vessels, some of them built expressly to be privateers. They would go out in the open ocean, and they would search for British merchant ships and sometimes British warships or ships of other countries that were carrying goods to British military. <clears throat> so they would go out attack these ships, capture them, hopefully, often bloody affairs, and then bring them back into port. There'd be a legal process to determine if you had a, a valid prize. And if you did, and this is what's really important, if your prize was a good prize, <clears throat> you got to sell it. And the proceeds from selling the ship and selling all the goods on the ship was split 50-50 between the owner of the privateer and all the men on board the privateer. So there was a profit motive, <clears throat> but as I make very clear in the book, privateers and privateersmen, were, they were just as patriotic as everybody else. Uh, they were not in it only for the money. They were also doing it because it was a way to fight for their country to did, be. Did privateers then uh, sail under the flags of the countries they were <coughs> working for? Yes. The, yes, in the American Revolution, as you probably know, there were a bunch of different flags. I mean, different colonies yeah. had different flags. Uh, there are some pictures of the flags in, in the book. Uh, you know, some flags just had bars, you know, red, white, and blue lines. Some flags had a, a little 
blue square of stars. Some flags had a coiled snake with the words "Don't tread on me" beneath the snake. Uh, right. A lot of a lot of the privateers that came out of Massachusetts, where I am, used a pine tree, and uh, under that they had the words "Appeal to Heaven," which is kind of tough to figure out exactly what they were doing. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so there there were a lot of flags. But yes, but even that is tricky because this is an era where you didn't have ship-to-ship communication other than yelling through a, a speaking trumpet. Uh, when you came upon a ship in the open ocean, you might not immediately know exactly who, uh, what country that ship represents or, or what that ship is, really. So you have to look very carefully. They may be flying an American flag, or they may be flying a, a French flag. A British ship often would fly a French flag because we were allied with the French during part of the war to throw us off. And you think, oh, that's, a, that's, our, that's our friend. They're our allies. But as you get closer, uh, the British ship might pull down the French flag and put up the Union Jack and start shooting. So it's called the Russe de Guerre, sort of, uh, you know, the false flag that was very common, commonly used by pi- pirates, commonly used by privateers, commonly used by British naval ships and American naval ships. So when you got close to, when you got close to a ship, uh, you often would actually yell over to them uh, with your speaking trumpet, you know, who are you, where are you from, where are you bound to? And if you believed it and they weren't a potential prize, you'd let them go on their way. If you didn't believe it, sometimes the captain of the ship asking the question would say, send over a couple of your men with your ship's papers. And then they would either come over and prove who they were or they would realize that the game is up and they'd start shooting. Eric, you said something a couple of minutes ago that that, uh, made my ear perk up a little bit when you referred to um, a a boat as a privateer and privateer's men. Mm. Yeah, this is something I had to think a lot about. In most books, when you you do read about privateering, the word privateer is used both for the vessel and the men on board. To me, that got a little bit confusing. So what I decided early on in the book, I explained that I refer to private, privateers are the vessels. The privateers are the vessels, and the men on board the privateers are privateersmen. So that made it easier for me to write the book, because if you're using one word to refer to both those groups, sometimes it just gets a little confusing. And uh, so that's why I did that. Well, I th- and that that makes sense because I I think most of us think of uh, when we hear the word privateer, you know, you know, we we sort of get this romantic picture of like Jack Sparrow, but you know, on, <laughs> no, no, they they didn't dress like Jack Sparrow, fight, fighting like for Alex truth and justice in the American way. Um, yeah, but. Uh, we get. I can't believe how fast the time is going, Eric. And this is a real pleasure. Oh. And I, I appreciate you spending uh, this time with me and the listeners. Um, I sure. always want to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, that's my, my website is just my full name. It's uh, Eric J. Dolan. So it's E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N. 
I-N, so you have to, I-N, not A-N, dot com. And it's a, it's a really useful website for a couple of reasons. One, it lists all the books I've written. Two, it, say, it tells you all the places I'm going to be speaking. I've got about 35 or 40 talks scheduled throughout New England and some places further afield uh, for Rebels at Sea. But also, for each one of my books, if you go to the books page, you can read the introductory chapter to the book. So if you read that, you can get an idea. Is, it, is this something I want to read yeah, sure. or buy? So that's, and, and beyond that, the book, you can find it any place that sells books. If they, if they don't have it on their shelf, they can order it. It's not a problem. And, uh, yeah, so uh, I hope people give it a try. If not this book, some of my other books. <laughs> I write them for people like me who are general generalists and really interested in reading history that's dramatic and not boring, but very, <laughs> very informative. <laughs> um. That being said, what's uh, what's next? <laughs> well, the next book, um, I, I'll describe it in broad terms. I'm writing a book about some British and American uh, American men who were marooned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. And it's a much broader story than just them being marooned. There's a lot of treachery and deceit and uh, uh, the wars involved and a lot of different issues, but that's what the book's about. <laughs> well, good luck with that, and thanks again. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Okay. That was uh, Eric J. Dolan, and the book is uh, Rebels at Sea. And uh, with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <laughs> Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Show It's the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Flipflip Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. 
Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger, and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom Dana. Dana? Something must be wrong. She never calls. Dana? What's wrong? Take this down. She's stranded on the side of the road. I'm not. She needs us to send her an Amazon gift card. I don't. And she'll use it to pay the tow truck driver. I won't. Mom, Dad, that's not me. It's a scam. Scam artists will call, text, or email people trying to get them to buy a gift card from Amazon or some other company, and then ask for the gift card number over the phone. Remember, gift cards are for gifting, not for paying people. If someone asks for payment using a gift card from Amazon, Target, or some other store, it's a scam. Hang up or delete the message. These scammers are awful. Wish they'd pretend to be her brother sometimes. Be nice to hear from him. For more tips on avoiding scams, visit michigan.gov ag for your connection to consumer protection. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone. I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. In the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Thank you. Thank you and good evening, my friends. Um, we're coming to you once again from 
from the beautiful Aragon Ballroom on Lick Pier at the beautiful Santa Monica Beach, California. We've been getting lots of cards and letters from you folks out there in the television land. And we surely do thank you for, uh, for, uh, for all the cards and the letters uh, from you folks uh, out there in the television land. Um, uh, starting us off tonight is our trio, the Lemon Sisters. And girls, uh, what are you going to sing? We're going to sing, thank you for all those cards and letters, you folks out there in television land. 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 And after appropriate the number, uh, one and two and... Please turn off the bubble. A thank you, Lemon Sisters, for that lovely number. One wonderful. And now on the way to the show, here's that man with the deep, deep voice, Larry Looper. Uh, Larry, what are you going to sing for us, Larry? I'm going to sing thank you for all those cards and letters. You I'm sorry about. that number has been taken. Well, I'll sing the funny old hills then. Good. One, and the two, and the... Hold it just a moment. Uh, the bubbles don't come till the end of the program. Uh, turn off the bubbles. Um, uh, thank you, Larry. Uh, thank you, Larry Looper, for that wonderful number. Uh, now I would like to play a short instrumental medley based on the names of girls. Uh, one, and the two, and the...
Time is running out, and we haven't even played the polka. Wait a minute, boys. I didn't mean... Hold it, Alice. Don't polka on my accordion. Gee, Dad, it was a Wurlitzer. Hit the theme, boys. And so it's good night from all the champagne. Where is the cameras? There's so many bubbles I can't. And so, friends, we help. The whole ballroom is shoving off the sea. Sure is a clear night, ain't it, Captain? Yep, matey. These are the kind of nights when the sea plays tricks on you. Yeah, I recollect one night off Singapore. Tricks, I see. Like that mirage off the port bow now. What? See it there? Kind of bubbly looking in the moonlight? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gee, if I didn't know better, I'd say it looks like the Aragon Ballroom. Yeah. Yeah. That's a catchy chant of your humming there, Captain. What is it? Oh, I don't know. It just keeps running through my head. <laughs> Let's go below and catch a little shut eye. Okay. Help! Help! Waterfall, waterfall. Turn off the bubble machine. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Yeah.
Passion Radio For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Show Oh yeah Well that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. I want to thank all of my guests from today. Eric J. Dolan, the uh, author of Rebels at Sea about privateering in the American Revolution. And uh, earlier in the show, we talked with um, an Arbornaut. I don't know if I've ever talked to an Arbornaut before, but um, Dr. Meg Lohman studies the uh, tops of trees. She's a National Geographic Explorer and Director of Tree Foundation. And uh, we were talking about the National Geo uh, Kids Almanac 2023. We started out this morning with a uh, Michigan mystery writer, Frank Anthony Polito, uh, about his book, Renovated to Death, about a gay couple that uh, fixes up houses and has a TV show and solves crimes. Anyway, it sounds like a fun book. In any event, uh, there's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall of the living room, but I'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.